morning. I am so glad to be here today. Thank you for, thank you for being here. Thank you for not getting up and leaving. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, my name is Amanda Neppel. I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines. I've been around for about a month now. And so since we're still getting to know each other, and by the way, you guys have been so wonderful. Thank you for being who you are. You've made me and my family feel so welcome, and I just appreciate that so much. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about me, because we don't know each other that well, and I want to tell you just a little bit about my hope story. If you've been around Lutheran Church of Hope very long, you know that one thing we love to do is share our hope story, because we know that God is working in lives, we know that God is transforming people, and we love to hear about how God does that through Lutheran Church of Hope. And so so my story really started about 14 years ago. It was the spring and summer, spring, early summer of 2001. And I got connected to Hope West Des Moines because at that time that was the only hope that existed. There was the one campus. And I got connected at Hope West Des Moines because a friend of mine encouraged me. She knew the stage of my life that I was at. She knew that I was going through. And she told me about the divorce care class that was offered at Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines. And that's where I was in my life. I was 25 years old. I was going through a divorce. I had a daughter who was about five months old at that time. And I needed support. And my friend knew that I needed support. But here's the thing. I wasn't sure about reaching out to the church for that support because I had some false ideas in my head about God. I had some false ideas in my head about how Jesus wanted to work in my life. I had some false ideas about the church. So, but I went to this divorce year class anyway because I had nothing to lose at this point. And so I went to the class, and the folks who were in this class kind of became like an instant kind of life group for me in that time. And we started going to church together and worshiping together. And soon, I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was always waiting for the sideways glance. I was always waiting for somebody to realize that I didn't belong there. And lo and behold, when that never came, I almost didn't even know what to do with that. And so slowly but surely, over time, God began to use Lutheran Church of Hope to take some of those false ideas that I had in my head and God began to replace them with true ideas about who he was, about Jesus Christ, and about what he wanted to do in me, how he wanted to give me a more abundant life than the one that I had been living. And so, so that was about 14 years ago. Then fast forward about four years after that, and I'm remarried at that time, and there's two more little girls at home. And I'm a KQ teacher. Thus, at that time, it was called KQ uh, for my oldest daughter's class. And there was a position open in the bulletin for the three-year-old through kindergarten uh, Sunday school coordinator. And I would look at that. I had a job. I wasn't looking. So I would look at the bulletin, and I would think, my goodness, that sounds like a great job. I think someone's probably going to snap that up right away. And I would keep looking at it. And it was in the bulletin for like three months. <laughs> and every week I would look at it and I would think, my goodness, that sounds like a great job. I don't know why someone hasn't taken that job. And people had applied for it and it just, things hadn't worked out. No one had been able to make that work in their schedule. And so one day I'm standing in my kitchen. I'm looking at the bulletin one more time and I see that that position is open. And I'm telling you, it was like God reached down in my kitchen and bonked me on the back of the head and said, hey, you should take that job. And so I thought, well, that's weird, but okay. And so I did, and that was 10 years ago, and I've pretty much been in ministry ever since with children for the last 10 years, but in that time I decided to go back to school because what I realized about ministry was 
I wasn't the only one who has wrong ideas in my head about who God is and about how much God loves us and about how he sent his son because he loves us so much. I wasn't the only one who had false ideas about that. And I realized that being in ministry, particularly at the time when I was working with children, I realized that I had an opportunity then to help facilitate God removing those wrong, false ideas that hold us back and instead putting in good, true ideas about who God is and about how much he loves us. And so that's why, long story short, that's why I'm here. That's 14 years in a nutshell. Um, so it's like, oh gosh, that's very gracious of you. Thank you. All right, so here we are in our sermon series. We're in Gospel of John, Sign of the Times. This is our third week in this series, and interestingly enough, John, in his gospel, is addressing some other wrong ideas about Jesus. At the time that John was writing his gospel, uh, of course, people had known about Jesus' death and resurrection, um, but there was some there was a lot of gossip and rumor and just a myth almost about who Jesus had been, what he'd been here to do. There was a lot of ideas that he had simply been a prophet, that he'd been a good teacher, that he had been, you know, God had been silent, the people felt, for a long time. So he was maybe just coming to let the people know that God was still busy. But John was like, no, that's too small of a picture of what Jesus was up to. And so John wrote his gospel differently than some of the other gospel writers wrote theirs. In John, we have things that we don't have in the other gospels, right? Right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's immediately addressing this kind of false idea that Jesus had just been kind of a God's like, oh, now what am I going to do? The people aren't following my laws. That wasn't why Jesus came at all. And John wants us to know that in the beginning was Jesus, that Jesus was present with God in the very beginning of creation. So he wants us to get that idea right. In the Gospel of John, we see where Jesus says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. We don't have that in the other Gospels. John is trying to tie together this unity of Jesus, Jesus with the Heavenly Father, and also he wants to tie in the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, we hear more about the Holy Spirit and then what we kind of call the Trinity. We get most of that from the Gospel of John because Jesus tells the people that he's going to send an advocate after him. He's going to send someone to help them after he leaves. Of course, the people are clueless. They have absolutely no idea what he's talking about, but that's fine. Jesus said it anyway, and later on, it begins to make a little more sense. So here in this section that we're looking at today, uh, John chapter 6, um, 16 through 21, now, <laughs> here's what we need to do. If we really want to understand what's going on in John chapter 16, we need to actually back up a little bit. We need to look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. It's in the same area that we had our reading today, so you can just put your finger in there and uh, kind of peruse that section and hold on to it for a little bit. Before, I'm going to really just rock your world right now. Before the days of the internet, they had these things called encyclopedias. <laughs> Are you with me? <laughs> okay. So they had these things called encyclopedias, and if you wanted to learn things, you had to go to the encyclopedia, and you had to investigate, right? It was very, very tedious. And so I, when I was in high school and college, one of the things that I really loved to study was human anatomy. I studied uh, biology in my undergrad, actually, and that was just something that I was really interested in. 
But in the encyclopedia, um, if you wanted to learn about human anatomy, they would have these like overlays. They were like clear overlays. So you'd start with one and it would be the skeletal system. And then you'd put the other one down and it would be the uh, muscular system. And then you'd get another one and maybe it was the circulatory system, the blood vessels and, the, and then the nervous system, the nerves. Anyway, by the time you got all the pages there, you had a full picture of what back in the days of the encyclopedia, what they imagined the internals of a human body might look like. I'm sure it's totally different now. Um, but anyway, so that's what we kind of have to do with this section of John that we're looking at. We're kind of, um, 16 through 21 is kind of the middle of the overlay, but if we go back to verses 1 through 15, we get a little bit more of a picture of what John is actually up to right here. So in verses 1 through 15, this is the story, this is the event in John's gospel where Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and their families, right? They've been, they gathered at the shore, they were teaching, Jesus was teaching all day, it gets to be late. We're probably familiar with this story. Um, it's hung, the people are hungry. They're tired. The disciples are kind of quibbling a little bit over whose job it actually is to find the people some food. And finally, what they find are a little boy's lunch, and he has five loaves of bread and two fish, right? So Jesus takes the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and he blesses it, and he distributes it. And they pass out the five loaves and the two fish, and it turns out that there is more than enough for all of the 5,000 men plus their families to have as much as they wanted, and there were 12 baskets left over. So Jesus had obviously been a very good teacher. The people had stayed around all day, even though they were hungry. Then Jesus fed them, and then they had 12 leftover baskets of food. Now, in 16 through 21, we read that the disciples are out on the boat by themselves, but in verse 15, we find out why Jesus wasn't with them because the crowd, after Jesus had fed them, had decided that they were going to take Jesus by force and they were going to put a crown on his head whether he particularly was interested in it or not because they were looking for an earthly king. Because the people, historically then, this is going to be one of our first wrong ideas about Jesus. The people thought that he was going to be an earthly king. They weren't thinking big enough yet. And one of the reasons they thought that was because they were sick and tired of the oppression of the Roman government. They'd been waiting for 500 years for God to make good on the promises that he had given them. 500 years before, the Israelites were living in Jerusalem, and they're doing okay, they thought. And the Babylonians come in and conquer their city. And over the next 500 years, it's just a series of conquests and series of new rulers who are more oppressive than the regime before that. So the people are now living under Roman rule, and they're sick and tired of it. And so they're looking for someone to be their king because they remember the promises of God to King David. God promised King David that someone from his family would reign forever. So the people have those promises in the back of their head, and they know that Jesus is from his earthly father, Joseph. Through Joseph, Jesus is a, a descendant of King David. So they, they know that. They've heard that he, they've listened to him talk. They know he's an incredible teacher. He fed them. He meet, met their physical need, which was way more than Herod had ever been able to do for them. And so really, in the eyes of the people, they're thinking, if we're going to make somebody king, this might be the guy to do it, right? So they decide that they're going to take Jesus and force him to be their king. Well, as we know, we can't really tell Jesus what to do. I mean, we try all the time, right? But Jesus doesn't uh, take particularly well to being told what to do. But when we look at uh, what Jesus was up to in verses 16, 16 through 21, walking on water, we have to remember that in just the verses before, Jesus has kind of stirred up all this ancestral pride for the people. He's got them remembering 
the 12 tribes of Israel by those 12 leftover baskets. He's got them remembering that God has made them promises. He's got them remembering that he comes from the line of David. He's got them thinking of all these things. So when Jesus goes out in verses 16 through 21, the disciples go off by themselves. Jesus is hiding. When Jesus walks on the water, when Jesus walks on the water, we read this section, if we don't keep it in mind, we're kind of tempted to think that it's kind of just a really cool trick, right? Like, whoa, Jesus walks on water, that's awesome. And it was really awesome, but it's so much more than just a cool trick. If we think back to 12 tribes, and we think back to the line of uh, King David and the promises that God made his people, if we're uh, reading John's gospel in the early second century after Jesus' death and resurrection, if we're reading that and we hear how Jesus walked on the water, there's two things that are going to come to mind. The first one is a little bit less popular for us, um, probably because it wasn't made into an awesome movie with somebody like Charlton Heston, but this one is when Joshua takes the Israelites that all they have to do is cross the Jordan River to get into the land God promised them. So the only thing standing between them and their promise is this body of water. And we know that upstream, God dries the river, and the people go into their promised land um, on dry ground. The second one, the more uh, well-known one, a famous movie, is with Moses, right? The second time we have a body of water standing between God and his people is with, actually it's the first time, um, is with Moses, when the people are leaving slavery in Egypt, and what's standing between them and safety is the Red Sea. So God shows up big time and he divides the Red Sea and the people go through on dry ground to safety. So when Jesus conquers this body of water and beats up with the disciples when they're in this raging storm, and the, mile, the Bible says they've been rowing for like three to four miles, when Jesus catches up with them, if we're reading this with an, an ear for John's original audience, we're going to think, oh, God did something cool with the water again. It's been a while since we've seen something like that. So then, we get across the water, Jesus and his disciples. It says in verse 21 that immediately when they pulled Jesus into the boat, they were immediately at their destination. And so the people, the next day, they come back to the shore where they had been, and the people are looking for Jesus. They're trying to figure out where this guy had gone because they knew there had only been one boat. They knew the disciples got on it and took it, so they should be able to find Jesus, yes? Uh, they're looking all over. In the meantime, some other boats have come across, and so the people basically hijack these boats and take them back over to the other side to look for Jesus. And when they get to the shore, they get out of their boat, and they look around, and it says in verse 25 that the people said, Rabbi... When did you get here? The people are like legitimately kind of dumbfounded at how Jesus got there. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that he wasn't there and then he was. Now, a similar kind of like, well, where did you come from miracle happens in my house. And I like to refer to this as the miracle of the scotch tape. Okay. <laughs> I, have, I have four children in my home and they're really lovely. And how the miracle plays out is something like this. My husband or I are innocently looking for just one little stinking piece of scotch tape. And we buy our tape at Costco, like 10 rolls at a time, so we know that legitimately there should be tape in our home. And I'm looking for a piece of tape, and I check in all the usual places, like maybe the bathroom or maybe under the couch. And then I check in some of the unusual places, like maybe the drawer where it actually belongs and I'm searching high and low, and I realize I'm not going to find any tape. So I line up all four of the kids, and then here comes the Inquisition. And I'm like, listen, 
I'm not even mad. Just can you tell me if you have some tape? And all of a sudden, I am speaking a language that does not exist. Not only have they not seen the tape, they don't even know what tape is. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, okay. So I just say, whatever. <laughs> Dismissed. Go on. And I write down on the list for Costco next time, scotch tape. And then I think, you know, they sell office safes at Costco, and maybe I should get one. <laughs> and maybe I should put the stinking tape in it. <laughs> and I go around, and I just am living my life, doing what I do. And lo and behold, I turn around, and on the counter, what do I find? Scotch tape. <laughs> right? And I say, Scotch tape, when did you get here? Right? It's a very similar thing, so I completely understand why the, uh, why the people were so like, whoa, rabbi, when did you get here? This doesn't make any sense. I totally get it. So anyway, so Jesus says, look, you're looking for me. You're interested in me because I fed you. You were hungry, and I fed you. But here's the deal, Jesus says, I want to give you food that won't spoil. And this food I want to give you that won't spoil, it comes from your Father in heaven. So when we think about this, and we think about the baskets of leftover food, and we think about Jesus walking on the water, and we think about Jesus saying, I want to give you something that comes from my Father that you can't even understand. This is how all this ties in together. This is why this is an overlay one on top of the other, because the people saw a prophet the people saw a teacher. The people saw someone like Moses who fed them in the desert. And we know that because it's going to come up here in just a few verses. So what John is doing is painting this picture for us that, you know, we can see Jesus as a teacher and prophet, but as we add the layers to it, there's more and more. There's the divine Trinitarian component of Jesus because he is the Son of God. Um, we know that this all ties together, and we know that the people realize it, too, because when Jesus says, I want to give you food that don't go, doesn't go away, that comes from my Father, the people are like, well, uh, Jesus, maybe you don't remember, but our ancestors got food from Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, I know, and I really I want to kind of up the ante on that. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me in verse 32. The people had just said, Jesus, we got our food from Moses in the wilderness, remember? In verse 32, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people think, well, that sounds awesome. So they say, sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. Doesn't Jesus just have a way of cutting through the garbage, cutting through the haze, and getting right to the point? Jesus says, I want to give you nourishment that won't go away, and it comes from me because my Father gave me the authority to bring it and to share it with you. And even as Jesus challenges, he also offers an invitation. 
Even as Jesus says, listen, you've got some false ideas in your head. Jesus says, you want me to be small. You want me to be a great teacher. You want me to be a great prophet, but you're trying to keep me too small because Jesus says, I am the one who came from the Son of God, and I, I am the Son of God, and I want to give you nourishment that won't go away. The people in Jesus' day had an idea of Jesus that was too small. And it's true that one of the prevailing kind of issues about Christianity in our world today is that we want to keep Jesus small, right? We want to keep Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher. But Son of God, that kind of gets a little bit wonky. We're not really too sure that we want to actually go there. So that's one of the false ideas that we get about Jesus. And another false idea that I think we get about Jesus and about his heavenly father, our heavenly father, is that God is saying he wants to give us all of this, but I think in our day-to-day life, in our heart and our soul, in our drive to work, as we sit at our cube, as we're with our families, as we're paying our bills, I'm not sure that we fully believe that God actually wants to give us and has the goods to give us the nourishment that won't go away. And I think that honestly, It's barely even our fault because there is only one thing that works like that, and that's God. In every other area of our life, think about it, every other area of our life, we are being assessed, and there is a checklist constantly, right? Our bosses, if we have teachers, frankly, our spouses, our friends, our parents, we're always being assessed. That's the kind of thing we can understand. We can easily imagine if God was a teacher. We can easily imagine God as a teacher, And all of our papers would look like that, right? Because the Bible tells us that God knows every single thought. It's not just the stuff we actually, that makes it from thought to doing. It's not the stuff that we don't do that we should. And there's all that junk in our head. And the Bible tells us God knows every single thing about it. And then we're supposed to believe, even though every other person in our life is assessing us, we're supposed to believe that that God is not, that he is freely giving us good gifts just because we believe that's way too simple. So it's so easy for us to get caught up in that kind of a thing. We can easily imagine if God was a parent. We can easily imagine if I was the kind of parent that we are, that, I don't know, I am. We would never be able to leave our room, (laughs) right? We would always be grounded. We would never get to use our phone, ever, (laughs) ever. As the parent of two teenagers, I can tell you, that if there is a plus, tide, plus side to the constant on your phone phenomenon, it, is, it makes an ep- excellent manipulate, no, behavior modification tool. <laughs> excellent. Now, and when we think about parenting, we think about what makes a good parent, let's be honest. We think about the parents who understand what motivates their kids and then uses it against them. That's what makes for a good parent, right? So we can easily understand how if God were a parent, that makes perfect sense to us. But that's not what God is doing. God wants to give us these good gifts freely, and all we have to believe, all we have to do is believe that God wants to do it. My example shows you how terrible I would be at it. It shows you how prevalent it is in in our world, that we are being assessed all the time. The only one who is not assessing is God, because God just says simply, I love you. I've got this. God says, Jesus says, when I look at you, I see a son 
or a daughter of the Most High King. I don't see that other stuff. I see a son or daughter of God. When I was getting back into church, I had a false idea that I needed God to replace. And so I want to ask you guys a question similar to one that someone asked me when I was at that point in my life. What if God isn't mad at you? What if God isn't disappointed in you? What if when God looks at you, all God sees is love and joy? Because that's the right idea. That's what God sees when he looks at us. Can I get the next slide, please? This quote by Dallas Willard says that the process of spiritual formation is replacing the wrong ideas, the false ideas. When I say wrong, I don't, I don't mean that we're doing something wrong. I mean that these are ideas that the world gives to us that hold us back, that keep us from living the life that God intended for us to, give. These are, to live. These are false ideas. But God wants to replace them one by one with true ideas about who you are as a child of God, one by one. It takes a lifetime. Spiritual formation moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his over the course of a lifetime. I wish that I could say to you that when you leave today, you are going to totally have all those false ideas zapped out and the new ideas are going to be in and in place. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Woo, new girl, right? Beginner's luck. Um, But it takes a lifetime. I'll, I, w- I will talk with you after the service. I'd be happy to. Um, over the course of a lifetime, God takes those wrong ideas and he replaces them with the right ideas. And here's why this really matters. Here's why this really matters. When we take our false ideas, when we take what the world says is true and we project it onto God inadvertently because that's what we do with everything else and that's what everyone else does to us, when we inadvertently project that onto God, what we are in effect saying is, Jesus, what you did, really great, but honestly, not enough. Because I know my thoughts and my acts and my deeds. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know how big that gap is, and I really appreciate what you did, but we inadvertently end up thinking, Jesus, it's not enough. And Jesus says, I want you to believe in me and to believe in the one that I sent because I want to give you nourishment that doesn't go away. Here's the deal. We cannot hold on to this stuff that we're keeping track of and simultaneously hold on to the grace that is given to us freely as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. They're too big. They're equally too big. We cannot hold on to one and simultaneously hang on the other. And Jesus says, put that down. That stuff that you're hanging on to that's on your checklist that you think gets you an F minus, put it down. Because Jesus says, I am here to fill you with the true beliefs about who you are to God, about who you are to me. And I want to remind you, if I may, that God is madly in love with you. When we think about who Jesus is, what Jesus did. The only response that makes any sense to me is to say, yes, Jesus, thank you. 
thank you that I don't have to hold on to all of this stuff over here that I can't keep hanging on to. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did, and thank you that it's enough. We're going to watch a little video, and then we'll get ready for communion. <laughs>